Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi and hybrid cloud environments. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the New Stack Makers. I'm Alex Williams, and we have a panel of guests today who are all going to be part of the Code to Cloud Summit. We're going to get a little preview, a little idea of what really is on these experts' minds that I am sure will be discussed more in depth at the summit itself. Joining us today is Guy Eisenkot, Vice President and Co-Founder at Bridge Crew. Hi, Guy. Hello. We have Barack Schoester-Goyleman, Senior Director, Chief Architect at Palo Alto Networks. Hey, Barack. Hi, folks. And Ashish Rajan, Head of Security and Compliance at PageUp and Producer and Host for a Cloud Security Podcast. I want to get it started right off. We were just chatting, and this topic of trust has come up. Trust, trust, trust. It's a word that we put a lot of meaning into now. It has deep significance, I think, for all of us, both in our own personal lives, in our work, and what we're seeing around the world. So one of the trust factors, and I would like to talk about this more, is cloud service providers. What trust do you put in your cloud service providers? The trust that comes after an incident like Log4j which was the biggest CV apparently in our lifetime. I think Ashish just mentioned that to me. And then generally, the situation we face today, a war in Ukraine, it's not the first war, and I expect it won't be the last. And so we have a lot of new dimensions to not only what war means, but what peace means. And when we think about those two together, we have to think about trust entirely. I expect this will be a big discussion as part of the Code to Cloud Summit. I know there's going to be a lot of discussions on cloud native technologies and issues such as access management and a host of other discussions related to GitOps. We're going to be seeing discussions there from people like Emily Freeman, who has written the book DevOps for Dummies. She's going to be talking about the psychology of InfoSec teams. We're going to have a keynote from Dr. Nicole Forsgren. She's a partner in Microsoft Research and author of Accelerate, the Science of Lean Software and DevOps. And she'll be talking about DevOps, security plus DevOps, best friends forever, love, BFF4L. And then security is co with Nancy Grishay, senior GitHub security lab developer advocate at GitHub. So there's going to be a lot of discussions there. But let's move to this discussion of trust. Trust, trust, trust. Guy, what happened last year with these cloud service providers and what does it say to you about trust and how teams then put that into context with their own work with both InfoSec and app development? A great place to start for us, and I was just telling the, the, tech, the guys here that uh, Barack and I have been doing this kind of reflective process on 2021, just to see what happened and to see where, where that met us as we're product and engineering leaders as part of our role. And we've worked with the cloud providers for the last three years very intensively all across the board as users and uh, partners and amongst other things. These past couple of months have been eye-opening for us in, in a few dimensions. 
but I think for industry professionals all over the board. One aspect I think that started to break for us is uh, how we perceive our cloud provider's ability to be transparent about initially the outages, but later on the vulnerabilities that they find internally. And we were thinking about how little we knew two or three years ago on the internal practices of these providers that we look up to and work towards when we look at, are they providing us the service that helps us keep our application up? And one more aspect of that, that we will definitely be exploring in our Cloud Code Summit is how that uh, pertains to the role of DevOps and security in, in 2022. And are these initial experiences that we had up until now, are they getting us to a point where we believe that security is now at the point where they can start taking some of that ownership that DevOps had proclaimed early on in Cloud Native? We've seen that as a, as a strong trend, and we'll be discussing this in some of our talks. Yeah, just to emphasize on what Guy have mentioned, we have a lot of trust in our cloud providers that trust open source packages like the Log4j package that is maintained by someone at the other end of the world that we don't even know and we don't have control of. And we trust our engineers that they're pinpointing the right package version in their package managers and maintaining a software bill of materials that is using vetted software. And we trust our networking team that they've configured our CI CD agents correctly and nothing can leak out from our CI pipeline. And I'm not saying that you should not trust those different teams and those different vendors. You should, but you should also have the tooling and practices and culture to make those teams productive in the way they operate because the software changes on a very fast velocity. You upload new versions to productions multiple times a day now, and you want to understand that everything is continuously monitored and is coherent to the best practices that you have decided as an enterprise that is your best practice as a set of policies. If you want to really sleep good at night and have this kind of trust with your engineering teams, you should find the, the best way to have a lot of answers to questions like, what open source packages am I using? What kind of infrastructure am I provisioning? What third-party cloud providers I'm using very early on and every step of the way? Probably put another perspective to this from a trust, although the shared responsibility is slapped onto us by cloud service providers on a day-to-day basis for using their services. Considering we actually had a couple of outages on all the major cloud providers last year, a lot of people who may be in the cloud space for a while, like I think I've been in this cloud space for at least seven, eight years now, or at least feels longer, but it's which is probably a veteran age in a cloud space. We used to have conversations about, can I trust in cloud back in the day where, and every answer would come around, oh, have you ever heard of Amazon going down? Have you ever heard of Google going down? Funny enough, we had Facebook going down as well last year. So it definitely has tested the trust boundary that we used to have uh, on quote-unquote shared responsibility as they talk about. So as security professionals who've been talking about using disaster recovery as a way to do a cyber drill to identify how reliable we are on these services from a trust perspective, I think that was definitely tested last year. And I would dare to say that a lot of people may have revisited what does that mean in their disaster recovery plans, where now it's a real probability that the service may go down and with log, something like Log4j coming in, where some companies like Amazon, uh, Azure, as well as Google Cloud, all of them have to come up with services to counter for what they, I guess, are exposing us to. I remember this was a particular service that came out when one of my team members mentioned this. Their AMIs, which is their images that they use on Amazon, 
they have like a script now which consistently checks for log4j. And you kind of would wonder if they resolved everything, why do they need to keep checking for it again and again in their own repo if they, unless they feel they haven't covered everything else? So kind of goes back to what Guy was saying earlier. They probably have vulnerabilities still which haven't been disclosed yet, but they have a script that kind of keeps scanning the image. So having outages is definitely something that's tested trust boundary. The other one being uh, the log4j example that I was referring to, uh, which is probably the biggest CVE score that we have gotten for any, at least in my lifetime. I may have seen a few, few of those in my, oh, I guess in my lifetime uh, yet, and maybe more to come. But I definitely find the trust boundary for how much you can trust for a cloud provider to be on, on top of their uh, services as well. So tell me about the script again. Like, what is this script? It's basically, if you have an Amazon Linux machine and anyone who has an Amazon account, they can go into it and have a look. We only came across it because we found that one of those scripts was consuming a lot of memory. And you kind of have to wonder like, wait, what is this new thing? And that's what we kind of found out that, well, it's like a log4j script that what it really does, as far at least with the little information we had, was it consistently looks for any process in the memory trying to do log4j. And they don't really tell you about it. And you almost have to assume that, oh, I guess it's Amazon doing it. So now you, your question of trust comes in again, where are you okay to have that script running? In our case, we took it off because we don't use Java, I guess, in our case. So we didn't have to worry about it. We don't expect to use Java in the future. But for companies that are using Java, they might have to kind of consider maybe this is a real challenge for them. But for people who don't even use Java are still being, I guess, given log4j. Thank you, AWS, for giving us to that. Uh, but not that we need it. That was pretty much the script. And maybe there are more services that are being used behind the scene just to keep checking for log4j. Guy, I'm wondering about this. And we saw log4j in 2021. We saw the outages happen in 2021. There have been reports of real concerns about distributions from the Linux kernel and uh, vulnerabilities that have been found. There's a whole list of them. Now we're in, you're, you know, coming into the end of the first quarter of 2022. What is it the work that you believe that developers should be doing, that security teams should be doing? What's on your mind about the state now and going forward? I talked to Barack and our engineering leaders a lot about being more honest with ourselves about our assumptions and how we secure and do things that we know we should be doing. I think where my head's at in the midst of we're finishing up our quarterly planning, planning our next portion of the roadmap. But if I need to be honest, I think there's three areas that are most interesting to me. First one, just holistically looking at code and code repositories. I think uh, for too long, especially coming with an open source background, developers and me and Brax individually have looked at our uh, code repositories as these file systems where we can infinitely store our code and play around and create hypotheses and, and build our prototypes. And I think uh, going back to our trust question, I think we have to be much more thoughtful on how we, we treat our code repositories. We need to do a much better job in knowing what's in there, what those code repositories are connected to, where are they uh, streaming data from, what environment variables they're using across the board. The second theme that I'm personally interested about now is how we've just overcome to this assumption that in order for automation and CICD pipelines to work, we just need to give them infinite privileges. So instead of doing manual things to deploy our software, we just decided to give the bots absolute uh, and endless control over our crown jewels and our secrets. So kind of reflecting on that, 
and trying to understand what that means for us as a, as a security business and as a secure business. The last one I think is interesting because this does come a lot in our day-to-day conversations is when is a good, good enough time to start fixing things that are not broken? And when we look at some of the things that uh, happened in, in the broader space of cloud security, you see areas where if you don't undergo substantial architectural changes, there's a few things that you're not going to be able to fix over time. And I have uh, Barack, my co-founder, he's my uh, security conscience, and he's the one that gets me and the team always hyped about doing things that are not necessarily urgent right now, but could become urgent very fast. I totally agree. And I think that a few months ago, I had a conversation with, uh, with Ashish and he asked me, Barack, what is cloud security for you? I keep asking myself that question since our, our last conversation, Ashish. And I first answered, since everything in cloud is API driven, we have the opportunity to query it and understand if it's secured. And then after a few years of having the cloud, we had another revolution making from everything from API first to everything as code. All of the, our resources that we're provisioning in the cloud, all of the containers that we're creating, we're creating it in a declarative fashion in the code repository. And that actually introduces another opportunity, which is to scan those code pieces very early on. So let's say that you've defined a three-tier web application with a database, a compute server, and a CDN for your web application. The ability to have it all persistent in code gives us, as a security vendor or an open source practitioner, the ability to create tools that can query those different resources, the different connections between them, and understand where in the code that declares those resources we have a weak spot, where do we have a weak link that our engineering team should fix in a pull request or or in their IDE before provisioning these kind of servers into production. And I think that the last piece, that having all of those different kinds of assets, infrastructure code, container images, open source packages, and the workflow of delivery pipelines themselves in the code repository can give us the full picture of the supply chain. And we can build a soft SBOM, a software bill of materials of our open source packages, of our infrastructure as code, which is kind of an IBOM, infrastructure bill of material, and runtime bill of material. And we can attach them all together to one story that helps us to prioritize, hey, I have bad code. Yes, but it's infrastructure code. What is it provisioning? It's provisioning a container. Where is that provisioning it? It's provisioning it in a production environment. Right. Let's prioritize it and handle it now. If it's provisioning it on a dev environment without sensitive data, it's all right. You can deprioritize it and let your engineering work on something else and be more productive. I keep hearing priorities. I keep hearing about trust and priorities. And this brings us back to the initial discussion about trust, but also the software supply chain, because What Guy's talking about are, for instance, having a better understanding of your code repositories, having a better understanding of your APIs. Ashish, where does this leave a developer team who all they want to do is make stuff? They just want to produce. They just want to code. Why are you making these people suffer? Oh, so there are two perspectives to this, I guess, to your point about bringing the whole trust and supply chain context to this as well. On one side, developers need to use the open source code to be able to 
I guess, to uh, create functions that they need to create. By doing that, although they expose the company and the, or the organization to potential vulnerabilities that they may not think about, and there's tooling for that they can go into, I, I think this is kind of where it's a, almost a convergence of having, to your point about dealing with vulnerabilities is not easy, period, in general. Uh, I think that there's almost like three buckets of people you'll find in any organization. One is very security savvy, as kind of uh, Guy was referring to Barack as that security savvy person in the team who's always cheating up security. So good on you, Barack. And then there is like the second bucket where they're kind of like what you said, Alex, that people who are just trying to do their day job and people like me, Barack and Guy would just kind of like, actually, you probably have some exposed vulnerability over there. So I want to use the example that Barack said about iBomb. There's probably infiltrator code, which is probably vulnerable. You probably some, someone needs to look at it. And the third bucket is where no one has any idea. They're just basically, I don't know, it's like wild, wild west out there. Now, for the first two buckets still, there is hope, but third bucket, I'm not going to talk about it because there's no hope for them, apart from just waiting for a doomsday one day. So for the first two buckets, from a trust and supply chain perspective, I think I like the analogy that Barack was saying earlier, that as kind of we moved in maturity of using cloud services and code itself, we've kind of found, oh, there's a better way to, do, to automate a lot of things by starting by API. Then you kind of go down the path of, I don't need API anymore. I can actually use do something, everything as code. Now, I feel like we're on that third stage where now that kind of directly answers your question. Developers want to co produce code, but simply giving them a vulnerability is not good enough because they don't have a context on what they're trying to solve and why they need to solve it. There's a lot of work being done. And Barack and I, funny enough, actually had the same conversation a few months ago where we find like a lot of people are trying to go into the path of these are vulnerable things we have found, but technically these five out of the 35 that you kind of identified make more sense as something that you should be looking at instead of all 35. Just don't drop everything. Try and focus on these five because they clearly have a lot more possibility of being exploited, either they're because they're internet-facing or the second possibility being they could be Log4j or any other popular CVE which is exposed on that leg. That's kind of how I would probably address the whole understanding of development and the trust that comes with it. Yeah, I think that Ashish have a good point on the internet-facing part. The things that you ask yourself is, is this instance internet-facing? Is it touching sensitive data? What kind of environment is it? Staging, dev, production? What kind of data? Is it PII? Is it PCI? What kind of risks is it introducing to my business? And this context exists within the security practitioner scope and the risk analysis and the privacy practitioners within the enterprise. And the ability to democratize this knowledge into the engineering team is really kind of this third wave enabling engineers to fix security issues by the priority that the enterprise sees fit. And to follow up on that, I, I'd like to give Ashish some hope for that third bucket. There's a lot to be said about creating strong incentives between DevOps and security. We've found two very good ones, and then we've recently found a third one. But the two very good ones, which I think are interesting, is one, let people use things that are free. We do open source for a living, but we've, we've found that people are generally a lot more inclined to work with open source and, and to work with the free tools. And I think that creates tons of opportunity because as open source as a distribution method in the security space is becoming one of the de facto methods to distribute ideas across the world, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for teams that are not necessarily inclined to do security work. 
So DevOps is basically a hotbed already for open source adoption. I would recommend to the partners that I work with to see if that's a good path to incentivize developers to take a stab at it. A second incentive that I think works pretty well as time goes on is just being proactive. Uh, We've spent too much time, I think, historically doing escalation meetings and getting everybody into the same room and shouting at each other against looking at metrics and measuring against KPIs. We found it's incredibly effective just to use the right time to introduce a problem to someone. Barack and I see this all the time where the team is essentially, they're always migrating things. But when they migrate an area that we know historically that we want to take care of, not only for security reasons, but maybe there's scale, uptime, other issues that we want to handle, they'll be much more open to handling that area if they're already incentivized by a business goal to touch it. So so those those are pragmatic and practical. The third one, which we found to be very helpful very recently, is that our cloud developers love acquiring new skills. So not only are we constantly migrating everything everywhere, but we're also finding opportunities where a migration from one technology to another or from one subservice in in a cloud provider to another is a great opportunity to take a step back, improve the way that we are discovering and identifying the problems and the risks and the vulnerabilities associated to that service. But we're also getting a better mental model of our potential risk moving from one problem to another. So uh, Ashish, don't lose hope on that third bucket. I think there's tons to do, even with those developers that don't really mind security. I just want to ask in conclusion on this matter of trust and cloud service providers, Log4j, we've talked about software bill of materials. We've talked about IBOM. That's a new one for me. And so I'm wondering what you're doing. What are you doing internally? How are you kind of like drinking your own champagne, so to speak? How are you thinking about the approaches you're taking? Are you doing all of these things that you're talking about? We try to make the different engineering teams secure in every step of the way. On the IDE, we have an extension called Chekhov for either VS Code or or JetBrains that while you code, it's a bot that tells you, hey, you need to add those lines to add encryption. You need to add those lines to add versioning and backup and recovery enabled. And this bot is helping you to write a better code. And it also has an algorithm behind the scene that identifies, in case that you've written bad code, who else in your enterprise, what other engineers in the enterprise have wrote code that you should copy from. And we'll use it as a recommendation engine to fix your infrastructure code or application code. The second part is having the same capability of code scanning, not only on the IDE, but also on the CI system. As part of the pull request, you can fail a build if the code that you've pushed into the CI system is not adhering to those best practices. You wrote an S3 bucket code block that is not encrypted or is public, and you really don't want to allow those of happening. And before the last phase of having a provisioned infrastructure, you have an admission controller, some kind of a gatekeeper that can say, hey, right before the provisioning of the resource, whether it's coming from an endpoint, a CI system, whatever that is, we will block a deployment that is not good. And the fourth piece is having runtime monitoring to understand that your runtime environment does not have any drifts from the GitOps pipeline that I've just described. And if there is drift, helping you to fix that drift, both in code and cloud. And we have tens of engineers using that method all across. That's awesome. I was going to say for us, because we are a product company, we definitely have 
figured out a way to reduce the amount of extra work or manual work that we have to do, I guess, in a lot of ways. So the way we found scaling in a cloud environment was easier if we had predefined security templates, predefined templates for infrastructure. And I think Amazon calls them the castle within castle approach, which just kind of was the foundation for the landing zone templates that came up with it. So we kind of went down that path quite early. And we've been on that journey for as a product company for 25 plus years. And since we moved into the cloud space, we finally started with the whole landing zone approach. That kind of has helped us scale and I guess reduce the overall workload that comes in with managing ongoing vulnerabilities. In saying that, we, we still obviously have to ongoingly manage open source vulnerabilities that we may be exposing ourselves to. That's just the nature of the trade. That I think there's a stat that came out some time ago, about 80 to 85% of the code in every organization is written by someone else. And what that's referring to is just the libraries that people use within each organization. And kind of one of the reasons why Log4j was so prominent was because everyone's using an open source library somewhere, which probably is not being managed by someone until 20 years later, someone figures out a way to exploit it. And then everyone has to stop what they're doing on a holiday and try and fix it. Yeah, so that's something that's worked for us in terms of doing ongoing security. And I don't think we are going down the path of SBOM yet, at least in Australia, but some of my American counterparts have started talking about it. But yeah, maybe IBOM could be the next thing. I'm, I kind of like jam with the word now. It's a good one. Yeah. I don't want to spoil some of these topics, but we'll absolutely talk about this in Cloud Code Summit. One of the things that I'll be talking about is, is a philosophy that we've been having in Bridge Crew and actually in our previous startup as well. So identifying a problem, in the cloud security space. Uh, we're super zoomed in right now on, on what supply chain means in a broader sense. And we talked about a bunch of these topics. You know, we've been tracking popular registries for templates and we've been scanning the entire Docker hub for, for almost three years now. So we have tons of this data that helps us identify like these cross-joint problems. So our philosophy has been, hey, one, let's see if there is a problem on a mass scale on a very publicly widely used asset out there. And we started with Terraform and moved on to other problem sense. Second part of that is go back to the community. And, and thankfully, we have an open source that does some of that work for you. It, it can find those problems. Rock mentioned Chekhov. But when we release some of those solutions back into the Chekhov community, at least we get tons of feedback back. And that feedback is usually one of the two things. It's one, this is a huge problem that just incentivizes us to invest more and put some more effort into Chekhov to help I'll say this, 90% of people to solve 90% of the problem. And then the other part of it is when people are overwhelmed because it's probably the first time they hear about that type of problem. And, you know, we went through this with infrastructure as gold last, uh, two years ago. We went with, through this with uh, secret scanning about a year back. We went through a similar exercise when we started to build out more complex policies that take into account dependency relationship between infrastructure components. At this point where we're seeing that gap in, I've mentioned repositories, CI/CD configuration and workflows, that's a huge space where when we released some of the, these capabilities out to Chekhov, the instant feedback from the community was this is an immensely important topic that we know very little about. We're strong users, but we've never thought enough about how do we treat it as a security modeling or threat modeling problem. So that's where I'll be spending some of my time on, on the Cloud Code Talks. You should definitely follow Barack, as, as we roll out some of these uh, incremental abilities into Chekhov. And if you have any feedback on how you're tackling that problem, we'd love to hear it as well. Well, from the uh, level of insight and intelligence of this conversation, I expect lots from the Code to Cloud Summit, and I expect to hear more about trust and IBOM 
I love the IBOM acronym, but I would love to learn more about what that means versus software bill of materials. So, but that's a conversation for another day. Maybe it'll be surfaced at the Code to Cloud Summit. And I really encourage everyone to go to the Code to Cloud Summit. I think you can tell from the level of expertise here in this discussion, it's going to be uh, excellent. And the speakers are top notch. So this is a chance really to get a better understanding of really what's happening now to be so you can take some actions yourself. So I want to thank our guests today, Ashish, Barack, and Guy. Thank you so much and look forward to talking with you all soon. No problem. Thanks for having us. Prisma Cloud is a comprehensive cloud-native security platform with the industry's broadest security and compliance coverage for applications, data, and the entire cloud-native technology stack throughout the development lifecycle and across multi and hybrid cloud environments. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes on the new stack makers. Create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more articles and great stories, go to the newstack.io.